Good morning, wherever you are, and welcome to St. Michael's in the Morning, a podcast series encompassing everything from sermons and services to special audio presentations, brought to you by St. Michael's Episcopal Church in Austin, Texas. For more information or to make a donation to St. Michael's, please visit www.st-michaels.org. Hey friends, welcome to episode 24 of Calm Words for Anxious Hearts. Today is part two in a two-part series that we're doing on the topic of shame. And if you are still tuned in, I applaud you because shame is a very uncomfortable thing to talk about. And yet talk we must because unless we know what shame is and how it operates, it quickly becomes that which operates us. And by the way, if you are yet to listen to episode 23, Shame Part 1, I would suggest hitting the pause button and listening to last week's episode because today's remarks are really meant to build off what we said last week. And so let's go ahead and start by recalling the question from last week that God asked Adam after he ate from the forbidden fruit, who told you that you were naked? At some point we were told, or perhaps we came to believe, that we were naked, that who we were wasn't acceptable, and that we needed to dress up to present as someone else in order to experience the love and belonging that we crave. Perhaps you remember the story of Jacob and Esau in the book of Genesis. They were twins. Esau was the firstborn and his father's favorite. Jacob, he was the clean-shaven mama's boy. And when Isaac was about to die, he wanted to give an official blessing to Esau, his firstborn son, because back in the day, people gave all the wealth and all the power and favor to the firstborn, and everyone else was ignored. And so Isaac sends Esau out on a hunting trip. Isaac wants one last meal before he gives Esau the blessing. Meanwhile, Jacob is in cahoots with his mom, And he tries to steal his father's blessing. And do you remember how he puts on Esau's clothes to look like Esau? He puts goat skins on his hands to feel like Esau. He lowers his voice to sound like Esau. In other words, Jacob acts. He pretends to be someone he isn't. And Jacob literally steals the blessing. Now, just think about how sad this incident is. His entire life, Jacob saw his father smile on Esau and dote on Esau and bless Esau. And that, more than anything, is what Jacob wanted, for his father to bless him, for the one person in the clan that mattered to tell Jacob that he mattered. And so Jacob did what he had to do, which is what I believe we all do to some extent. He dressed up as someone else, and he stole it. And isn't that what we do when we feel unworthy of love and belonging? We dress up and we play the part of a person we think others will deem as worthy of love and belonging, but there is a problem. Stolen love isn't love at all. And so in time, that whole game of hustling for worthiness and belonging becomes exhausting and unsatisfying. 
and it only serves to exasperate our loneliness and our sense of disconnection. And so for today's episode, I want to do three things. Number one, I just want to do a little review, talk about what shame is and what shame is not. Number two, to talk a bit how though shame is universal, how it's often experienced differently by men and women. And then three, to talk about shame resilience. Sadly, there is no such thing as shame resistance, but shame resilience is very possible and the very thing that grows our capacity for wisdom and more meaningful and satisfying relationships. And so first, let's do a little review. So let's just start reviewing the definition of shame. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. It's not something we like to talk about. And so when someone uses the word shame, there are two common reactions. Either they'll say, I don't know what you're talking about, or they'll say, I know exactly what that is, and I don't want to talk about it. It's because we have a visceral reaction to the word shame. We hear that word and we shrink. And so it's helpful to be knowledgeable about what it is so that we can actually lean into this idea. And basically, here are the one, two, threes of shame. Number one, we all have it. It is our most primitive human affect. Number two, nobody wants to talk about it. And number three, the less we talk about it, the more we have it. Shame hates having words wrapped around it. And to help understand how shame grows, if you were to put it in a Petri dish and then to douse it with secrecy and silence and judgment, that shame would grow and thrive. But if you doused it with empathy and with self-compassion, that shame would not grow. Shame cannot survive in an environment where there's a lot of empathy and self-compassion. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a bit. It's also helpful to differentiate shame from other self-conscious affects. Shame is a focus on self and not behavior. Shame says, I am bad. Guilt says, I did something bad. And the main difference is that shame is never known to lead us or society to positive change, whereas guilt does have the potential to motivate us for positive change. I think it's also helpful to differentiate shame from embarrassment. Embarrassment is also a self-conscious affect, but it's fleeting, it's often funny, Whenever we do something embarrassing, we know we're not alone. If we spill a glass of water at a restaurant, we'll be embarrassed most likely, but we probably won't fall into a shame spiral. And so that's our little review on what shame is and what shame isn't. And so the question is, how does it show up in our life? Now, even though this is going to mean painting with some really broad brushstrokes, I think we need to say a word about how women and men might experience shame differently because even though the experience of shame is universal, the messages that trigger shame often vary culture by culture and even by gender within certain cultures. And so let's go ahead and start by talking about women. And I want you to imagine a spider web where an insect is caught, desperately wishing to be free, but she can't because she's caught, she's stuck. Can you imagine being caught in that web? Well, according to Brene Brown, this is how 
women often experience shame, meaning that to the extent that a woman thinks that her worthiness has to be earned, life may feel like she is caught in a web. Because the truth is, we have many roles and we wear many hats. And I imagine that as women, you often feel caught. Like you have to look perfect and be perfect and do perfect and hold it all together and keep all those plates spinning, but at the same time to make it look very effortless and easy. And as many women know, that is a lose-lose game, being caught in that shame web where you're expected to do the impossible and you buy into the illusion that you can do the impossible and that the impossible is fun and that the impossible will leave you feeling energized and important and valuable. And so, for example, according to the world in which we live, the ideal woman can often do a few impossible things all at once. She can be perfect, but also make it look easy. She won't upset anyone, but she will speak her mind. She'll relax and be herself, unless, of course, she's introverted because it's really important to exude confidence and to be outgoing. She won't be too emotional, but also she won't be cold and detached. She'll work full-time and be a stay-at-home mom, and finally, she will excel at everything. She'll be the perfect mom, employee, wife, neighbor, church leader. She'll do it all perfectly But of course, she will model self-care in the midst of all that. Women in our culture often find themselves in an impossible place, a web of conflicting and competing and impossible expectations. And so for them, courage may begin with a very simple affirmation, I am enough. These conflicting expectations are impossible. I will not adhere to these rules, and I will not ask other women to adhere to these rules either. And so maybe you're a woman and you find yourself caught in that web, thinking that as a mother and spouse and leader and volunteer and employee or whatever other role you have in life, that you have to do it all perfectly and balance all these competing expectations, and in the process to make sure you don't drop the ball or let any flawed parts of yourself be seen or exposed. Or maybe you have a woman in your life and you see her caught in that web, struggling. What are the scissors that can cut that web down? That's what we're going to talk about in a minute, but first a word or two about men and how we experience shame. So according to Brene Brown, men often experience shame not as a web, but as a box. And basically, the rules for men that box us into a very small existence are really simple. We are not to exhibit any of the following. Failure, being wrong, looking weak. These, she says, are the cultural rules for men. And so One of the things I think we all know that the world needs right now is to find fresh solutions to the massive problems that we face, which requires creativity, right? I mean, the world's changing. The dilemmas that we face are complex and multi-layered. There are pandemics and injustice and new technology. And, you know, life is very complicated and it moves so freaking fast. And that's why faithfulness to the gospel in today's world doesn't just require courage, It requires creativity. 
But creativity means a willingness to fail, a willingness to look weak, a willingness to be wrong, and that always means wrestling with shame. It means that we might have to confront the reality that we don't have all the answers. And so for men, rather than seeing ourselves as strong people who can't fail, what if we were to see ourselves with a more realistic and balanced view as people who are sometimes strong and sometimes weak, as people who are wrong more often than we are right, and people who can learn and grow in the midst of that experience because our worth is found in God. I think the point I'm trying to make or get at is this. If we really want to reimagine our world or reimagine our family or reimagine anything in our society that feels broken, that work always, 100% of the time, begins with reimagining ourselves. And nothing, and I mean nothing, will keep us stuck clinging to a false and harmful and unrealistic view of ourselves more than shame. And so if that is true, what will heal our shame? A knowledge that we are deeply loved by God? Yes. But of course that is not enough because shame is a bodily communal experience and so we need more than true ideas to move past it. We need Jesus with skin. In other words, we need a community of people where two values are normative. Empathy and self-compassion. And so let's start by talking about empathy. If we can share our story, if we can be authentic with someone who responds to us with empathy and understanding, shame will not survive. And so what is empathy? Well, empathy happens when someone is courageous enough to let their full self be seen, especially in a painful moment, and we respond by doing a few things. Number one, we stay out of judgment, out of giving advice, out of persuading. And we listen to someone's story from a place of openness and curiosity. And this is big because remember, when there is judgment of any kind, shame will grow exponentially. Number two, we take someone else's perspective. We ask the question, what was this like for them? We try to see the experience through their eyes. And so, for instance, whenever the coronavirus hit and my daughter KK threw a huge fit because she could not go to school, from my perspective, I might say, you know, KK, get over it. This is temporary. There's a disease. We don't want to spread it, yada, yada, yada. But to be empathic is to name that a two-year-old's experience is much different and that what is happening now is actually the biggest loss of her entire life, the biggest loss of her entire life. And so part of my work as a parent is to see this experience not through my eyes but through her eyes while also staying out of judgment. And then number three we understand the emotion behind the experience that we hear, and then we communicate that back to the person. And this is big. We don't have to understand the experience itself to offer empathy, but rather the emotion behind the experience. And so, for instance, 
A black woman once shared with me how scary it was for her to drive through a certain county at night because of recent violence that had occurred, and she was so terrified of being pulled over. Well, as a white guy, I've never had that experience. I've never had that experience before. But I do know what it's like to be terrified. I know what it's like to be nervous. I know what it's like to be afraid. And if I can go to that place in myself, I can go there with her too. And by doing so, give her a sense of connection that she otherwise would not have. If I assume that we were too different for me to empathize, we'd never be able to connect. In a similar way, I recently had a police officer share with me that he has never felt more alone, alienated, or unwanted by his community. Well, I've never been a police officer. I've never been the focus of protests or had people look at me and see me as a symbol of injustice. I've never had that experience. But if I can look into my heart and know what it's like to feel unwanted, alone, scared, disappointed, I can connect with him and offer empathy. And so notice, empathy is not the same as sympathy. Sympathy is, I feel for you. Empathy is, we're connected. I feel with you. I feel with you. And so, for instance, last week in our episode, I mentioned a guy I mentored who was incarcerated for stealing a car. And so I can listen to his story of pain in one of two ways. As someone who, on the outside, is very different from him, one is I can have sympathy. I can say, oh my gosh, I have no idea what that's like. That must be really tough. Bless your heart. I really feel for you because that is really yucky especially for my world where things like that don't happen and none of my friends steal cars. That's sympathy. I've created a gulf between myself and him, and rather than giving him connection, I've actually added to the disconnection between us. But here's the thing about sympathy. When that's what we offer another human being, it exasperates shame and therefore feeds the roots of the very problems and pain that we seek to heal. But if I can listen to his story deeply, if I can allow myself to entertain what it's like for him that his dad died when he was four and that his mom's an addict, if I can listen to his anger and the deep pain that's always behind anger, and if I can touch that place in my own soul and therefore connect with his soul, if Knowing his pain, because I know my own pain, I can begin to understand what it's like to be so starved for community, so desperate to be seen and validated that I would rob someone at gunpoint because I want the approval of the person who's with me. If I can understand that and not judge it, and he knows that I understand that a rash decision was made, not from a calculated place of malice, but from a deep human need to connect. Well, that's going to open up a new space between us, and shame will not survive long in that type of environment. Criticism, excessive judgment, disappointment, a lack of curiosity about the story behind another person's story, because there's always a story behind the story. That's like throwing gas on a fire with respect to shame, but empathy is a bucket of water. 
And the second thing that we know heal shame is the practice of self-compassion. Ultimately, neither we nor the people we love can be resilient in the midst of shame without some level of self-compassion. Because here is the truth. The people who stop hustling for love and belonging are the same ones who believe they are worthy of love and belonging. And whenever it comes to the people we love, we cannot make them self-compassionate, but we can model self-compassion and we can hold it up as a value and we can practice it. Because in my experience, self-compassion is caught and not taught. And so a question for you to consider this week, are people in your life catching self-compassion from what they see in you? Do you talk to yourself the way you might talk to your best friend? Because the thing about self-hatred and self-compassion, both are highly contagious. And so what are people catching when they interact with you? Self-hatred or self-compassion? And so let's go back to our question. Who told you that you were naked? If we're going to forge loving and lasting and deep relationships, I think it begins with this question, who told them they were naked, unworthy of love, unworthy of belonging? Who told them they needed to prove themselves? And who told us that we were naked? What serpent keeps telling us that? Because if we're not naked, if in fact God clothes us in worth and dignity and love and nothing can ever take that away, mark my words, we will see one another differently. And that difference is what will make a difference in our world.